0: Welcome to An Economist Goes to College, a podcast about the economics of picking and paying for college. I'm your host, Beth Akers, economist and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm excited to have Kristen Blagg on the show today. Kristen is a senior research associate in the Center on Education, Data, and Policy at the Urban Institute, where she focuses on funding and finance policy for both K-12 and higher education. In particular, she's done research on student loans, return on investment, and measuring student need. Kristen, welcome to the show. Hi, Beth. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So today I want to talk to you about something that's um, near and dear to my heart as a researcher, which is measuring outcomes. Um, I know you've written a recent report for the American Enterprise Institute, um, has a, a volume on this subject, and we're hoping to pick your brain about it a bit more.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, my paper focuses on program level earnings data. Um, it provides an overview of how um, earnings and non earnings information have affected student choice. And then I really dive into the interaction of earnings data and geography um, because many uh, higher education students are sort of geographically bound to where they live. And program level, level earnings aren't going to be as useful if there aren't meaningful differences um, in, in two offerings of programs nearby.
0: Okay, Kristen, so back up for us here. So we've had a number of guests on the show recently who are talking about outcomes data. I've even written a book myself about how students should be shopping for college based on outcomes data. Now you're talking about something that's a bit more granular than what some of our previous conversations are about. You're using the term program level outcome. What does that mean? Sure. So
1: The College Scorecard, um, just published by Department of Education, now has uh, program-level earnings. So the earnings of people who graduate from a specific program. If you're familiar with the sort of zip code way of looking at things, it's sort of a broad, uh, sort of four-digit zip code. I think is the level they they publish at. It would be the the distinction between uh, doing a very specific biology program and biology programs in general. So what the college scorecard does is say if you were to major and graduate from institution A with a degree in biology two years after leaving the institution, this is the amount of earnings on average that those students earn. If you were to graduate from institution B in biology, this would be the earnings that students earn. The data have been published at the institution level and are now starting to be published at the program
0: level. Okay, and so how did that come about? Because I know it was a huge innovation when we started to have outcomes data of any type published from the federal government. So how do we get to the point where we're not only looking at institution-level data on outcomes, but these specific programs and groupings of programs, as you've called them?
1: Sure. Um, well, it's it's a great innovation, but it is imperfect. Um, so I am not the person that that builds these data. I merely use them. Uh, but my understanding is that these data are the result of a link between um, records that the Department of Education has on students who have received financial aid from the federal government, and um, tax records from the Department of Treasury. And those data points can be linked um, to generate aggregate data. On, on potential earnings outcomes for different groups of students. Um, the reason why the program level data in, particularly, in particular are um, a little bit difficult to parse is um, not only are they only for students who have received any form of federal financial aid, but they're also for, for people who have graduated from a specific program. So we don't have earnings data for students who attended an institution, even if they were in a given, let's say, biology major, but didn't complete. And also, because we're at this program level, um, in many cases, we don't actually have earnings data for given programs because those programs are too small to produce sort of a valid measure.
0: Okay, so you're jumping ahead a bit on me because, you know, I'm over here still cheering that we've got outcomes data, right? And I'm saying, woohoo, that's great. Now students can shop with more information, make more informed decisions, policymakers know where there's a good ROI. And you're saying, as we've evolved through the college scorecard existing now for several years, is it? We have just gotten to this point where now the data is rich enough to start to produce outcomes for these smaller subsets of students. But you're highlighting that there's some challenges when you look at the data this way that are maybe in excess of what they are when you look at them at a college level. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's correct. So there are several programs for which a student may may look and find that that program is offered at an institution, but we won't be able to see the earnings that that student may expect from that institution because the, the number of students that are in that sort of pool of graduates is too small.
0: Got it. Okay. So, there's some limitations here. Um, so, very basically, is this better or worse than if we had not moved forward with program level information in the first place?
1: Well... I'm a researcher. I love data. And I say any data that we have out in the world is great and useful. And I know these data have been used by other research to look at things such as return on investment. But one of the reasons why these data were produced was because policymakers believe that they could guide student choice. That students who were looking for a a good nursing program, for example, might be able to use this information to determine whether they should go to nursing program A or nursing program B. Um, And so uh, what I'm doing in my analysis is sort of testing that hypothesis, trying to understand how many students have a choice like that nearby um, and how many students actually might not have a choice like that. Near their home. Yeah,
0: great. So that's kind of the economist's dream, right? It's like we've got this marketplace for programs. People are out there shopping, really informed about what each program pro- potentially could produce for them. They know what the price is. Um, they're essentially policing the marketplace, right? Like that's the that's the textbook um, image we, we economists maybe foolishly have of this space. So now tell me, because I think you're going to tell me this, tell me where that falls short. Where do we not quite achieve that? That reality.
1: Sure. Well, I think I think there are a couple of places. Um, one is is, um, is in the assumption that you know, for for most students, all of or a very broad range of choices are available. Um, we know that for students who are, are high achievers um, and who are willing to move away from home to go to college. There is a, a sort of national market, and we do have some research evidence that shows that students, um, particularly well-off or more advantaged students, might be using information like earnings to to discern between certain um, certain institutions. But um, for maybe a more typical student, um, choices are a bit more limited, right? It, this is not um, you know fifty six different kinds of cat food that are on the shelf there. I'm. I'm thinking of cat food only right now because there's a shortage and we're we're looking for it everywhere. <laughs> but maybe this is an appropriate analogy when you when you don't have you know the Friskies that your cat loves and you're you're looking at the tuna with papaya. You're like, well, <laughs> I guess I'll try this and see how it works. <laughs> and it's it's also you know in line with that analogy. It's not necessarily a repeated game. Spending the buck fifty on the fancy tuna and papaya and finding out that our cat does not like it is just losing a dollar fifty. But for colleges it's an investment of money and time and other resources. Um and so it's a bit harder to see, see the higher education market act like we, we might expect another kind of market to act like.
0: Right. Okay. So we have to be somewhat more realistic. It's not necessarily a national marketplace. People are not looking at the the universe of choices of colleges and programs in front of them and picking the one that best suits their needs because guess what? There are other factors, like maybe one of them is far away and you don't want to relocate your family to go there, right? Mm-hmm. So what do we know um, from your research and others' research about how much this data is actually changing the way that people make decisions?
1: Sure. So we have some evidence about the effect of of non earnings data, the information like data on on selectivity, on on net price. You know the types of of things that you might expect. Um, you know before these these earnings data existed, students were still making choices um, on colleges, and so we have evidence um, that for highly selective institutions, products like the U.S. News and World Report, where um, colleges fell on those rankings, whether they fell on the first page or the second page, we have some evidence that that did affect um, sort of students were voting with their feet based on the information in, in those reports. Um, in more recent data, we have evidence from Hawksby and Turner um, that, you know, if you're, you're providing um, more information on a net price and other, other uh, data to high achieving low-income students across the US, that those students are are choosing more selective colleges, sort of a better match for their own academic skills.
0: Okay. But these are kind of the old models, right? The ranking systems, going using price as a as a tool of judging quality. How about this this newer stuff, the outcomes-based data?
1: Sure. So the earnings data have not proved as definitive. Um, When the college scorecard data came out in 2015 or so, um, the college board did a look at the effect of institution-level earnings on um, score sends, so where students were sending their standardized test scores, Um, and they did find a slight shift so that colleges that had higher earnings data did get slightly more test score sends. Um, However, that effect was largely focused on uh, or concentrated in more advantaged high schools. Um, so, so, students that are already likely picking strong matches for themselves were picking ever so slightly better matches overall. Um, and uh, work that we have done um, looking at providing program level data to students in Virginia. Um, we built a a website to sort of help students see the difference between majoring in different types of programs and their eventual earnings outcomes. And we found a a general null result. So compared to students who did not get that data, we didn't see any change in the institutions attended and the majors selected when students were first enrolling in college.
0: Mm, Okay. So that's pretty discouraging, I'd say, right? I'd
1: say there are a couple of things that we, you know, at the, at the outset, if you were viewing this as an accountability metric where we felt like putting, putting this information out there, students will vote with their feet and very quickly we'll see the market sort of respond, I don't think that that, that model itself is valid. Now, perhaps, you know, over time with um, students adapting to learning about these data, maybe you could see some some work on the margins. But one of the things that I really focus on my, my report is that, um, you know, a lot of students who are considering options are really geographically bound. And so, even if you were to sort of take the generous approach that, you know, high school students in their busy lives or, or adults who are returning or, or attending higher education for the first time are going to sit down and and do the research, even if you're you're making that assumption, you also have to assume that they're only going to be choosing within sort of the, the geographic area that they're, they're in. And even when we look at the most popular um, programs, we see that information to make, you know, a substantially different choice is only available for a small share of the population.
0: Got it. Okay. All right. So, that makes some sense. And so, it sounds like there's, there's no reason to get rid of this data. I mean, it's not causing people to make worse decisions for sure, but where do we go when we're in this place where we had, I think, been hopeful that um, that data would drive at least some difference in decision-making and would, you know, at the very least help individuals who are, you know, searching out this information to make better decisions for themselves. How do we make the system work better, both for for those individuals and for, you know, collectively for the system
1: sure so one of the things that I talk about in my paper is that I think other systems that particularly high school students use are growing aware of these these data and incorporating them into into ways that the high schoolers can can use more readily than going to the college Square car website right so for example Naviance which many students may use to look at and then apply for colleges through their high school may start to feed these data in. And having that data supplemented in particular with information around what students that look like you from your high school are getting into different programs might help support um, some localized choice and, and some some decision making from students.
0: So that's sort of kind of digesting the information and delivering it to students just in a different way, which is still kind of hopeful that people will respond to this information if we could just get them to digest it or to latch on to it in a way that maybe they're not quite connecting with now. Yeah. So I
1: I think that's one, one possibility or one possible approach. And I think it also elevates the use of this information so that colleges are paying a bit more attention to it, even if even if locally it might not matter too much, if they they might be the only nursing program in town, so they're they're not too worried. But, it, it, you know, it, you could also imagine students might be trading off between um, going to the nursing program or a different job that doesn't require a degree. And um, and in that case, um, you know, awareness of that data and elevating that data, even if students wouldn't objectively seek it out, might be important. Mm-hmm. The other place where these data could be important beyond student choice um, is informing policymakers. So policymakers being able to see um, which types of programs are making students better off, which are, are sort of returning more or less of a return on investment. So those are you know some of the the possibilities. I think next week discussions of gainful employment are coming up, which can involve questions around using information on program level earnings to inform accountability. Um, and I think that, you know, if we're talking about policymaker use of these data, that is, um, you know, one, one possible avenue would be that policymakers would look at programs that have a really high debt to income ratio as, as potential options for removing federal assistance for those programs.
0: So Kristen, remind listeners, what does gainful employment, what do their gainful employment regulations do? What are they? Where do they come from? Why are we talking about them again?
1: So gainful employment was um, a proposal from the Obama administration um, that certain programs that were charged with providing gainful employment um, would lose their ability to provide federal financial aid, grants and loans um, for programs that had really high debt to income ratios.
0: Okay, so there were some schools or some programs at some schools that had this higher standard now to live up to, right? And it had to do with you got to make so much money compared to how much you borrow or else we're going to take away your access to federal loans, right? Okay. So, going forward, we've been talking about program-level outcomes, not just for this limited set of career-oriented education programs, but for all institutions and all programs that are currently eligible for federal aid, right? And so, um, what's next? I mean, do we – would you think about moving forward in a direction of – all institutions, all programs having to satisfy this higher standard that the career-oriented programs have already been charged with having to, to meet?
1: Well, I think I think if I were a policymaker, I would think about a few different questions. Um, the first one would be, you know, to to what level of debt do we think, you know, how, how do we think about the types of risk that a student takes on? Um, when they we, when they go into a program and then what, um, what is the federal government guaranteeing when they're providing aid for those programs? Right. And I would, in thinking about what the threshold should be, I would think about, um, you know, how, how, how much and how much risk we should expect students, um, to, we should lay on students versus on institutions or on programs. Uh, certainly, you know, different types of programs provide different types of benefits. I sort of steer away from providing from from providing any um, sort of viewpoint on this because I'm I'm a researcher, not not an advocate. But um, I, I do think that. Given the hazard that that student debt can and the sort of burden that student debt can place on some individuals, we want to make sure that we have suitable guardrails, maybe beyond uh, the use of a cohort default rate, which monitors institutions' access to Title IV aid, um, to to make sure that you know um, that students are are sort of at least insulated somewhat from from the worst outcomes or from programs that will. Take some of their valuable time and and money, but not, in all likelihood, produce strong returns. The other potential value of a program level rather than an institution level accountability system is that there may be institutions out there that have some strong programs and some weak programs, and the and you know as as this, my subject in my paper is largely geography, might be one of the very few institutions in a local area and the ability to to look and see, identify programs that might not be working for students um, while retaining programs that are delivering um, good or stronger outcomes for students um, might be a a better, more surgical approach if you wanted to preserve um, higher education institutions overall in, in some of these maybe more geographically isolated areas.
0: Got it. Okay. So we'll take you back to, well, you can take off your, your uh, policymaker hat for a minute. We'll get you back to your comfort zone in the research space. So what is the data telling us about, you know, what? what is the variation in program level outcomes across institutions, across geographies? I mean, where is there a place for concern or where are, are things going really well? Sure. So
1: as I mentioned, I really only look at the most popular or the most frequently um, reported programs. So for associate's degrees, things like nursing, um, business, criminal justice, liberal arts, uh, for the bachelor's, business, psychology, biology, um, and master's programs, um, business, education, registered nursing. Um, And the way that I frame sort of a meaningful choice Uh, For the undergrad programs, I'm looking at an average earnings two years out of school with a sort of a $5,000 difference between, let's say, institution A for nursing and institution B, and then for master's programs, a $10,000 difference. Um, And what I generally find is if if students are only looking within about 10 miles of where they're located... um, the the number of students that have that kind of meaningful choice, even with these very popular programs, is quite low. Um, so maybe 10, 15, 20% of students, depending on the program, might have a a choice of a meaningful choice with, with earnings data for two different programs within 10 miles. As you widen the scope, 25 or 50 miles, you do expand um, the share of people that. Uh, have access to a choice. Um, But I'm doing sort of crow flies miles. So if you're thinking about, oh, 25 miles, that's not too far away. Well, that's if you were able to get an airplane and and go. So 25 miles might be, you know, depending on geography, maybe even up to an hour's drive away from where that person is located. Um, So very quickly, you see that the scope of choices can be quite
0: limited. Got it. Okay. And so, you know, my sense is that through COVID, we have gotten an expansion of online education in the post-secondary world that um, we may never have had absent, you know, this pandemic. Um, What's your sense about how this changes things? I mean, does that increase the choice set for students in the future?
1: I think this is something that should be examined more thoroughly. In fact, um, with a former uh, research analyst, um, at Urban Victoria Rosenboom, um, who actually led this work, we did a short report pre-COVID looking at um, the intersection of geography and internet access. So, In those places where you don't necessarily have a a, a lot of choice in the types of institutions you can attend nearby, do you at the very least have sufficient internet access um, to to look at online options? and we, we we looked at that overlap, and we did find some places that had neither. About I think three million uh, Americans using some, um, maybe perhaps at this point outdated data, didn't have access to either, you know, a, a choice of nearby programs. Sort of we in an ed, um, sort of the Nick Hillman definition of an education desert, um, and also didn't have sufficient internet that we thought you could get a really good online education experience.
0: Mm, so if you're in a place that doesn't have a lot of colleges, you probably also don't have access to really fantastic internet. That that sort of makes sense and is unfortunate. We might like it to be the reverse so that those people had more access to, to choice, at least through online programs. Well, it sounds like that's something that we're going to probably be following over time um, as potentially we see the marketplace evolve into a hopefully soon post-pandemic world if we ever can get through this. So, okay. So lastly, Kristen, what are the trends that we do see across the nation in terms of choice?
1: Sure. So we, I did break this down um, by the availability of any earnings data um, an earnings choice and um, available earnings choice data by state. Um, I think broadly looking at those trends, um, states that are m- more urbanized, so um, places like like New England um, and, and places that have um, large metro areas tended to have more choice and more availability. Um, and then, as you might expect, more rural areas have um, fewer folks that, with that choice within a 25-mile radius. Um, one of the other things I do want to note is that we, I did try to do an analysis of these, these data by race. And uh, actually, in line with our previous findings um, uh, from our 2018 paper looking at that intersection of physical desert and online desert, um, I do find that um, American Indian and Alaska Native populations are um, one of those populations that are, are most isolated from um, educational choice.
0: Okay, excellent. Kristen, thanks so much. I think this conversation really puts in perspective, um, you know, some of the hopes and dreams that we all had for data when it comes to informing choice, um, but also it gives us a way to think about moving forward. So thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to learn more, please subscribe to the show and also check out my new book. It's called Making College Pay and it's available right now on Amazon. Have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions for me? It would be great to hear from you. You can send me a note from my website, bethacres.com, and find me on Twitter at Dr. DrBethAkers. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.